Well, good morning. So glad to have all of y'all here. If it's your first time as well, uh, glad that you made it here. I'm John, one of the pastors here at the church, and um, so glad to have you. Let's pray, um, and we'll dive right on in. Father, we come to you right now just thanking you that Jesus is risen. We're not praying to a dead God. We're praying to a God that has come into the earth and conquered death, Father. The one thing that has held everybody else down, Father. Jesus, the one man who didn't deserve to die, died for us, and now he's raised, Father. And so I pray that um, as we come to your word, as we approach it, as it speaks to our life, that we would be reminded of the fact that we don't go into the life that we lived in a posture as those that are defeated, Father. We come into this life knowing that Jesus has purchased victory for all of us to put our trust in him, Father. And so I pray that we would see that and we would sense that as we talk today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I have a confession to make, and the confession that I have to make is this. When I feel safe, I tend to relax. I kind of feel like I work really, really hard, but then at times when I feel like I've, I've, I've worked hard and I got what I hoped that I would get, I have this just nasty habit of taking my foot off of the brakes. And I think the, uh, this was very, very clear to me my last year in college. Uh, uh, me and a good friend of mine lived in the same house, and we would leave and come back and leave and come back. And one day I came back and found out that I left the door unlocked. So I came in and I looked around, and things were fine and things were, were cool. So I thought, hey, it's okay. It's actually convenient not to have to lock your doors because then you don't have to get your keys and all of that stuff. Well, my friend Kirk did the same thing. And he came back and he found out, oh, I didn't lock the door, things are fine. So we came to the conclusion, well, this took place twice, two times is a pattern, therefore, it's okay to leave our door unlocked and we're just going to go home and come in. So that's what we did. It was convenient. We weren't concerned about our protection, we were concerned about the privileges that we had until one fateful evening when we're both at home and our door's unlocked and some guy runs through our front door, closes the front door, puts his back on the door and just starts to breathe. <sighs> so I look at Kirk and Kirk looks at me, I'm like, you know it? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Get out! And so at this point, he starts to explain why within his wait, wait, wait. I didn't need you to tell me why you're here. I need you to get out. So he leaves, and at that point, we stand up, we lock our doors, and what we say is, regardless of how safe that we felt, there are crazy people here in this world. Regardless of how much of a convenience it is, we're not safe. We can't just go through life not thinking about our safety. Here's what I know about all of us in the room. I bet that you have the same nasty habit that I do. When things go well, we continue to coast and think that life is good. 
So we coast with our spouses when things go well. We coast with our jobs. We coast with school, right? Those tests that we don't prepare for and we take it and God blesses and we make an A and we think that that's just how life's going to be. It's easy for us to get into this pattern where we sit back and coast. And I think that we do it for two reasons. The very first one is this, is that as we look at life and the prospects of life and what can take place, we feel pretty safe. We never really feel like things are going to go that bad. Or more than that, right, we feel like we have the strength to be able to ward off any dangers that come our way. We feel that we're smart enough, that we're good enough, we're good enough drivers to be able to text and drive and to swerve and to almost hit somebody else's car. And then we keep driving and we get back on our phones and start to text more. We just have this nasty habit of putting so much trust in ourselves that we never feel like we're in any real danger. We feel like we're out of harm's way when life goes good for us. But what if we're wrong? What if we're not out of harm's way? As we talked about a few weeks ago, if you're not out of harm's way, but you live like you are, then what takes place is you're most vulnerable for danger. Complacency only ends one way, disaster. That's the only outcome for it. If you're complacent in friendships and, re, re, and relationships that you have, it's just going to end one, one way. If you're complacent on your job, it's just going to end one way. If you're complacent in your relationship with God, it's only going to end one way. And here's what makes it so tough. Complacency is not a big deal for people that think that they're failures. Complacency is only a big deal for people that think that they're successes. And the more successful you are, especially as it relates to how you feel like you and God are doing, the closer you actually are to becoming complacent. So if I were to sit back and to ask you, how were things with you and God? What would you say? It's good, it's pretty good. Things are well, I don't have any big concerns. Well, why would, would you say that? What are the things in your life that lead you to believe that things with you and God are good? Here's what most folks would say. I'm good with God, and I know that I'm good with God because he takes care of my needs. He's provided for me. I know that I'm good with God because he's led me to where I need to be. He provided me with direction, and now I know that I am where I need to be. I know that I'm good with God and that God's pleased with me because I almost got into an accident one time and God saved me. I had my back up against the wall and God made a way out of no way. God did all of these good things for me, and therefore that's how I know that he's pleased with me. The question is, if that's you, how are you so sure? 
if that's you, how are you sure that just because God provides for you, that means that he's pleased with you? If you take all of those things and you make that connection in between the things that God does for you and his pleasure towards you, and it's the wrong connection, then all that that means is it's led you to be complacent in your walk with God, and complacency ends one way in disaster. So what I want to spend our time trying to talk through right now is how do we deal with a danger that seems to only increase with the more and more successful that we are in this walk. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we want to spend some time as we look to Paul talking to a group of folks that are extremely gifted. This is a church that Paul is going to look at them, and one thing that, that he's going to say is this church lacked no gift from God. This church was impressive. This church had folks that did many, many great things for God. Well, this church found themselves in a place where they became very complacent in the way that they lived their lives. Instead of guarding themselves and living as those that needed protection, they felt that because we were Christians, because we're saved by grace, because God has done all of this work for us, now I'm free to take all of what God has done for me and spend my life living for enjoyment and pleasure. In the world that we live in right now, in Christianity today, in what goes on in many of our lives here in this church, Christianity is nothing more than us being able to get out of hell free, but as we look at the way that we live our lives, we spend our lives pursuing enjoyment or fun, and the way that we justify it is we live and we say, I'm not sinning. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to draw our uh, attention to the fact that God wants something much more for all of us. God wants something more than that. And the very first thing that he's going to do is he's going to challenge the misconception that we have here. That just because God provides for me, he's pleased with me. Paul's going to say, if that's the way that you think, you're heading down a bad path. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, the very first point that Paul makes is this. God's provision isn't always a sign of his pleasure. God's provision isn't always a sign of his pleasure. In 10, starting at verse 1, Paul says this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." 
The very first thing that God does for all of us that think we're on good terms with God because of all of the things that God does for us, the very first thing that he does is he draws our attention to a group of folks who up until the time Christ came, nobody else had God intervene for them in the, the way that they did. So the nation of Israel that was enslaved, if you read your Bible, one thing that you see is this, right? God led them out. God delivered them from slavery. Then Paul's going to go on and say this. They were all un 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 under the cloud. That what took place is as they were in the desert and they wandered for 40 years, God led them by this big cloud that gave them shade and directed them and guided them. It's one thing if you stand outside and walk out and like if you were to stand outside right now and walk and there was a cloud that followed you, you would sit and think, God must be on my side. It's hot. God cares for me. This is a group of folks, a nation that most folks think uh, is two and a half million people at this time. And for 40 years, this cloud was there. Not only did they have this cloud, but he goes on and it says this, um, uh, and all of them passed through the sea. That when God saved them, what took place was they have mountains on both sides, an army behind them, and as they come up to this Red Sea with no way to go, God parts this sea, makes a way out of no way, and all of them walk through this sea. And so Paul's just going to go on and on and use this same word, all, all, all ate this, this same drink. All were fed by God daily. We sit down and we eat and we pray God, or we pray and thank God for our food because God fed us indirectly. These were people that for 40 years, God rained down bread from heaven. All of them had this. So what Paul's going to say is this. Do you remember this group that God led, that God comforted, that God provided for all of their needs? And we'd sit back and say, yeah. Paul says, the, God's provision for them says nothing about how pleased that he was for them. Though God did this for all of them, in verse 5, it says this, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. God's provision is not always a sign of his pleasure. You and I look at the things that God does for us, and we think that those things are a statement about us, how faithful we've been. Whenever God provides for people, it's always a statement about his goodness and not ours. So for all of us that would think that because God provided for me, because God kept me, because God made out a way, because God made a way out of no way that he's pleased with me, Paul's going to go on and say just because God provides for you, it doesn't mean that you have his pleasure. And so what that means is this. Your money, your wealth, your health, your status, your prominence, your positions mean absolutely nothing when it comes to does God approve of your life. 
So if you try to make the connections between the things that you have and how much God's pleased with you, if you're like me or like most of the folks in this room and live a middle-class life, you're probably going to come to the wrong conclusion about what God thinks of you. You're probably going to grow very complacent as God provides for you all of these things, the very things that he's provided for you to give you a sense of his goodness. You and I are prone to take those things, and now they become a distraction from God himself. God's provision is not always a sign of his pleasure. We can't confuse experiencing the good things that God gives us with earning those good things. The good things that we get from God mean absolutely nothing about God's pleasure towards us. But it points us towards God's goodness. And so as Paul's trying to talk to a group of folks who have become complacent in their walk, what he says is this. If you want to make a connection between your work and God's actions, don't look at the good things that God gives you because God gives those good things to people that he's displeased with. The rain comes, the sun shines on both the just and the, the unjust. What Paul's saying is, if you want to make a connection in between your works and the things that God does, don't look to the good things that he gives. Look towards the punishments for sin. That's what you and I earn for the things that we've done. And so he'll go on and say this. If God's provision isn't always a sign of his pleasure, one thing is abundantly clear, and that's this. God's punishment for sin is a very clear sign of his displeasure. So at the end of verse 5, it says this. God's not pleased with them, and so they were over thrown in the desert. Look here at verse 6, and it says this. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual Im uh, in, uh immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has fallen." His point is this, as we look back at the Bible and we look back at the stories of all of these folks that we see, Paul's saying this, if you're trying to make a connection between the things that you do and the way that you live and the way that God responds to the way that you live, it's foolish for you to try to take the data that's your life and make that connection because at the end of the day, your story's not done yet. You don't know how all of this plays out for you. But there is a group of folks that we do know how it plays out for them. 
all of the folks that we see here, the nation of Israel, the people that God did all of these great things for. And so Paul says this, as you look at their life, what takes place is their, their examples and pictures. They give us the full story so that we don't long after the things that they long after. We live in a world where folks say experience is the best teacher. And what Paul's saying is that's not true. Somebody else's experience is the best teacher because you learn the same lesson and you don't have to go through the same heartache. So Paul goes on and says this. Look at how it plays out for people who spend their lives taking God's gifts for granted and living how they want to live. It only goes one way. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. When the nation of Israel uh, got delivered from the slavery that, that they were in, what took place was this. God gave them manna. God fed them with bread. So as Paul says this, he's starting to make a reference back to a time where in light of all of the bread that God gave them, one thing that they said was, we don't want this anymore. We don't want this. Every desire for evil begins with a lack of gratitude for the things that God has already provided for us. And once we're ungrateful for the things that God gave, it's only a matter of time before we look back to the slavery that he saved us from and look at that with thoughts of fondness and nostalgia. So this group of folks who are free, being fed by God, directly from God, they have the audacity to step back, to fold their arms, and to say, man, when we were in Egypt, we had meat and onions and all types of stuff. And, and then they say this, and it cost us nothing. That's so funny. People would look back to the slavery that they were in with fondness and selectively look at all of the good things they, that they got from it and disregard the fact that they paid for those things with their life. And you and I do the same thing whenever we look back on the life that God had saved us from and long for all of those times where we could just go out with the guys or just go out with the girls and have a good time. And that's the thing that drives us. As if God didn't save so many of us from the disaster that we were in. I know the stories of those that are in here. I know that y'all, that we are grateful for the things that God saved us from. And it's so easy for us to look back to those times with fondness. It took God one day to save his people from Egypt, to take them out. But it took him a lifetime to take Egypt out of them. And the same is true for us. God saves us from our slavery in a moment. 
but it takes a lifetime for him to remove those desires from our heart. And what Paul's saying is, look back and reflect. Their story is done. If you want to make any connection between folks' actions and what God gives them, make these connections. Paul said, God went to great lengths to write all of these things down so that we would see the connections are as clear as day and we don't have to speculate. And so the very first thing that he draws our attention to in verse 7 is this, is that all of our sin, all of our turning from God is not a works problem. It's a worship problem. Verse 7 so it says this, do not be idolaters, listen, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This comes from the story of the golden calf when they make this idol. So it starts here and says, let's not be like they were. And then verse 8, 9, and 10 is going to share all of the things that they did. At the end of the day, all of our sin is not just actions that you and I do. All of our sins are actions that come from our identity. And our identity is formed by the God that we serve. So as you think of this concept of idolatry, don't think of it as a statue that you bow down for. Idolatry is this. It's whatever you live for. What do you live for? What lies at the center of all that you do? What's the cause of your deepest anxieties and troubles? When you have free time and your mind is free to think about anything that you want to, what does your, your mind go to? Look at your bank statement. Look at how you spend your free time. Think of how you spend your discretionary money. So when we say, what do you live for? Don't be so quick to throw God there. Answer all of those questions, and the answer to all of those questions shows what it is that you live for. And at the end of the day, what takes place is this. Every one of us, as people, were created to reflect the God that we serve. Your life is merely a reflection of the God that you serve. All of these actions, at the end of the day, show that the main problem of this group of people was not that they did bad things. It was that they worshipped a completely different God. And that's going to give us a hint into why the punishment for all of these things is so severe. Verse 8 says this, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Listen, and 23,000 fell in a day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, complain, as some of them did, and were destroyed 
by the destroyer. Death, death, death for all of those things. And so here's what takes place in our hearts. We read all of those things, especially the last one, grumbling. And we would look back and say, God killed people because they complained. So you and I step back and we say, that's harsh. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. And do you know what we do when we do that? We put ourselves in the position of God as the judge instead of those that need to hear from the judge. We're not here to judge what punishment a crime should get. We're here to sit and learn what the judge says. And when the judge shows us the severity of, of the punishment for the crime, then what that does is it gives us a clue of this is a bigger deal than I thought. That if you were to leave from here and you were, and you in this fit of rage punched a guy in, in, in the face out here, you would get in trouble. If you in that same fit of rage punched a, a government official with the same force, you would get in more trouble. Not because the crime was different, you would get in more trouble because of who the crime was committed against. So this is what Paul is trying to draw our minds to. That as we spend this time and as we live our lives and we engage in, types, in, in things and we justify it by saying, well, it's not that bad. I really didn't sin. Or, man, I think that it's okay. We disregard the fact that any offense and any sin that we commit is not just a sin against the people that we do it against. It's a sin against God, and therefore the punishment is going to be treated as such. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a day. So there's this story in Numbers chapter 25 where Israel practiced sexuality outside of the bounds that God had set for it. And as they did that, they were led into worship of an idol, and what took place was in one day God struck them down with a plague, 23,000. And we would look and say, man, that's harsh. Let me try my best to, exp ex to explain why the punishment fit the crime. Let's take one thing that you and I think very lightly of. And Paul does this so that we don't think light of sin. Think about the concept of porn. Right? It's so funny because it's laughable in the day and age that we live in for a church and for pastors to find someone that's struggling with porn and to really go hard after it, to make sure that this is not something that just stays. We live in a world that as they think of porn, what they think is, uh, it's just porn. But here's what, what it, it, it does. What porn does is this, is it disregards the fact that men and women were made with 
dignity in God's image. It disregards the fact that God made them to be a reflection of him and that when they found themselves in a relationship with somebody else and they got married, that in the bonds of this committed relationship in between a man and a wife, they would be able to have sex. And sex is a very good gift from God that's meant to point us towards him so that we are filled with gratitude. In Genesis 2, it makes pains to say that as Adam and Eve saw one another naked, there was no shame. And so what porn does is it takes sex out of the sacred context that God set that in. And now what it does is it takes people and it dehumanizes them to where we don't view them as people. We don't think of what takes place after they leave set, the violation, the shame, their life spiraling out of control. Even in light of all the horror stories that we've seen, people that are suffering as a result of all of this, what takes place is we live in a world that says it's just porn. I disregard the fact that people's lives are ruined and I indulge and participate in this because it brings me pleasure and so you look at people that were made to serve God and as they served God they would experience the blessing and peace that comes from him and will look at them and say I don't care what you do with your life just so long as you please me and at the end of the day, people were made to serve God. They were not made to serve you. You, my friend, are, are not God. But every time that people indulge in just porn, they seek to take God off of his throne and place themselves there. It's an attack on God himself just porn. And so one thing that I do want to share as well is that in the life of this church, we take sexual sin very seriously. Porn is something that can be done in your room behind closed doors and it will affect you. But one thing that I want you to know is it never stops there. Sexual sin is a downward slope that only gets worse. And so what takes place is that seldom does it stop there. Sooner or, or later, what takes place is you are going to want to act out. That that's what, what takes place. And I just want it to be very, very clear here in this church that as pastors, we feel like God has called us to protect this church. God has called us to protect those that are a part of this church. So if you are a man in here and your mindset is, I'm going to come in here into a place where I know that people trust me and take advantage of the sisters that are here, I want you to know that will not fly. I want you to know we'll do everything 
everything that we can, all of what Scripture will let us do to be able to ensure, right? I had a qualifier. To be able to ensure that those that are in here are protected. And I want you to hear that. That we really view this church as family. And we really want y'all to be a part of this family. And the reason why we're so protective of this family is because we're inclusive. Inclusive in the sense that we say there's nobody that can't come and be a part of this family. We want folks to come in. However, as a part of this family, we are a group of folks that unite around the work that God has done with us. So there's no sin that we would say keeps you at the door and does not let you come in. But there is a posture that we would say, ah, that's not what God wants as a part of his family. And that posture is an unrepentant willingness to stay in sin. Anybody that wants to be a part of this family can, just so long as you affirm a few things, that you're a sinner and that you're in desperate need of God's grace, that you need Jesus as much as we all do to change our lives. Let's move on. Verse 9 says this, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Here's what takes place. The best picture that I can bring is this. When Jesus in uh, uh, Matthew 4 was being tempted by Satan in the desert, what he said yeah, sorry, excuse me, was this. Throw yourself from this mountain because the Bible says that God's going to save you and God will protect you. And Christ says, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Testing Christ is this. It's stepping into places that you know that you shouldn't be willingly putting yourself in danger and harm's way and thinking that it's okay because God's going to save me. It's placing ourselves in environments that are designed for the destruction of any faithfulness towards God and being confident that God's going to rescue me because we're on good terms. At the end of the day, what that does is it's saying, I'm not here to serve God. God's going to serve me. So I'm going to go and I'm going to tote God along and trust that right before I step over the ledge, God's going to save me. It's making God your butler. And so I, I want to speak to it very specifically, very plainly, so that there is no mincing of words. Uh, we, we talked a few weeks ago and heard about a party that went on among a group of folks that are Christians. And at this party, since it's not a sin to drink, what took place was they started to take jello shots. It's not sin to drink. 
it's okay, right? So it's not a sin. However, jello shots are designed to hide the bitter taste of potent alcohol so that as you take those things, you don't know how far that you've gone. That's putting God to the test. That's saying I'm knowingly going to use my freedom to step into a place that has been the downfall of so many and thinking that God's going to save me. It's not okay. It's not. It's to treat God as if he lives for you and you don't live for him. It's to take God off of his throne and to put yourself there. These are the things that, that Paul says, and lastly in verse 10, the one that is hard for us to believe, but I feel like is the most destructive of all, and it says this, and we must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is the one that's so hard for us to see as death being a right punishment to complaining. All that complaining does is this, is it says, I'm frustrated with what God has done with my life. I think lightly of his infinite wisdom and power and I trust that I could do a better job than he could at being God. And since I don't have the power to change that, the only thing that I'm going to do is voice the things that are in my power. Every mutiny in government starts off with a single complaint. And what takes place is as that complaint goes on and on and on, it grows. And a government is overthrown because people that have the complaints find themselves in a place where they have the power to change the person that leads things. All that complaining does is it reveals a heart that says, if I had the power to, I would unseat God from his throne and I would be there instead. How is that any different than what Satan did? Grumbling and complaining against God, even if it's not directed at God, is one of the most satanic things that can go on, not just in the life of a person, but in the life of a church. All of these, at the end of the day, say God's not doing a good enough job I would do a better job than him if I had the power to unseat him. I'd do it in a heartbeat. And all that these actions reveal is that their hearts are made up of the same stuff that our hearts are. We would look and say, man, how can people who saw God work like this respond to him in this way? Easy. Because they're just like us. How could people that have grown up in the church their whole life, how could people that have been around this so much live lives that are so centered on themselves? Easy, because in our hearts, 
we're all convinced that we would do a better job at being God than God. And if we had the strength and the power of two, we would do whatever it takes for us to sit on his throne. Do you know what that's called? It's called treason. Do you know what the punishment for treason is in any country? Death. This is why you and I earn death for our sins. It's not just because we've messed up and made bad choices. It's that our choices reveal that in our hearts, we don't want God in his place. In our hearts, we reveal that like the Pharisees in the gospel, we're so frustrated with the things that he says and the demands that he makes on our life that we feel life would be better if he was dead and we got to run the show. And God is a just God and a holy God, so he's not going to let that fly. His provision isn't a sign of his pleasure. He does that stuff because he's good. But his punishment for sin and the severity of it is a clear sign of his displeasure so that you and I don't think lightly of sin and think lightly of the Savior that died for this sin. And all that this is meant to do, Paul's point in all of this, is to lead us away from self-confidence and trusting in ourselves that we would depend on our Lord. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He starts off, and his first point is this. Instead of rejoicing or ed, ed, instead of admiring how well that you stand, be mindful of how likely it is for you to fall. Better men that are stronger than you have fallen before. No one is exempt. His point is this. You're not as strong as you think that you are. We're not. Do you know what every addict has in common? They started out with an amazing amount of self-confidence. I can take care of this. I can manage this. Just this last time. It's okay. I can hold my liquor. I can control my lust. I can watch my, I can all of this. And Paul's point is, listen, you can't. Listen, people that saw God split a sea in half and walk on dry ground lived faithless lives. What is it inside of you that makes you feel like you could do any better? In some ways, we don't, have what they have in terms of what they can see. Here's the beauty of what Christ does give to us. As sure as we're told that we're not as strong as we think that we are, what he says here is that 
but you have more power at your disposal than you could ever imagine. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Listen, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Here's the beauty of what he does. In the midst of temptation, he points us not to think about ourselves, but to think of God himself, which reminds us of Jesus being tempted in the same desert that all of these folks fell in. They had all of the things that he did not have. They had two and a half million people that were there to be able to remind them of God's faithfulness. And they still fell. Jesus was in the desert by himself with no one to remind him of the great things that God had done. And he passed. They were in a desert being fed by God daily. And they still didn't have the strength to withstand temptation. But Jesus was in a desert after 40 days of fasting and stood Satan face to face and resisted every temptation. They died as the rightful punishment for their sins, as all of us should have. But Jesus, who never should have tasted death, he died for all of us that have fallen. For all of us that have been overcome by temptation, for all of us that have found out the hard way that just because you ignore the temptation, it doesn't mean that it goes away. It's just a matter of time, and what takes place is that you give in. I give in. We give in. And we all, like them, our storyline should have been the same. As a result of our sin, we earned death. But because Jesus died for us, we see God's grace in a rich way in that in our sin, we don't die. For those of us that have put our trust in him, even as we look forward to the one day where we do die, it's not going to be a punishment for our sin because Christ took that. Our death is merely going to be a pathway for us to see our Savior and to rejoice in the great things that he's done for us. So death is not a thing to be feared. Death is not a thing that reminds us of the fact that God is mad at us. Death is our escape from this world at the time that God chooses for us to be with our Savior. And not only has God done that for us, but look here at what we get. No temptation is over... over, over Take it in you that is not common to man. Here's the beauty of what God's done for, for us. The temptations that you and I fall to and slip to, it's not that they are extra special. They're very common. Which means this. You should never feel embarrassed to confess your temptations. Satan wants us to feel as if we're the only married person that is tempted this way. Or we're the only single that's tempted this way. Or we're the only mother or father. The beauty of all of this is, is that God says it's common. 
so that there is no fear and there is no shame. And the person that lives their life confessing their temptations is less likely to have their life ruined by sin. Confess it at the point that it comes up. Bring folks in and say, hey, I just want you to know who in your life knows your temptations? Who in your life knows your weak points? Don't be so quick to try to paint a facade of strength. This is very, very clear. There's none of us that are strong. All of us are weak. We're all prone to fall. And if you isolate yourself, if you think that you're dealing with something uncommon, you're prone to fall in ways that God never intended for us to fall. When temptation comes, it says this, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. God is aware, but look at the care and concern and that it goes so far as to say this, God filters the temptations as they come to us. So you and I are never forced into sin. You and I are never set up for failure. But God has this care and concern and he protects us. And then it ends off and it says this, but with the temptation, he'll provide a way of his, his, uh, escape that you may be able to endure it. Temptation always comes as a package deal. It always comes with a way of escape for those of us that look towards it. God hasn't just left us out on an island. He's cared for us. He's provided us with a community of folks that experience the same things. And for all of us to take advantage of the gift that God has provided for us, there's freedom. This is not a text that's meant to make us all feel bad for where we are. This is a text for all of us who think that we, who, for all of us who think that freedom is found in me as a Christian being able to live in the way that I want to live and still find myself in heaven. This text reminds us in the same way that we needed God to lead us out of the slavery that we had to sin. We need God to lead us in this life to freedom, to joy, to peace, to restful nights where we don't have to wonder and be concerned about where you and I stand with God. This isn't a text that's aimed at a bunch of folks trying to tell them what they have to do. It's saying, look at what all you have, our faithful God wants you to depend on him. And to the extent that you do, you have access to more power than you can imagine. But it's active. There's no days off. The Christian life is not like our jobs where we work real hard and accrue vacation days. And that on those days we can just do what we want to and still get paid as if we were at work. Our vacation days don't come in this world, they come in the next one. Jesus bought those for us. So as long as we're here, we work living life in such a way where our aim is not just our freedom and enjoyment, but God's glory. 
And if that's the life that we live as a church, if that's the way that we live as Christians, we'll find satisfaction in this life that we could never imagine. We'll find the real end to all of what we try to work for and live for. Let's pray. So, Father, um, we just ask again that we would be grateful for the fact that you saved us, Lord. You delivered us from bondage, from the death that we should have earned, and your intention and your goal was to unite us to yourself so that as we lived in this life, we would truly be a, a reflection of the God that we served. Help us to be that, Father. Help us to paint a beautiful picture of who it is that you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.